Welcome to The Workplace, a podcast by Cal Chamber. I'm Jennifer Barrera, Cal Chamber President and CEO. And today on the podcast, we have a very special guest with us. Secretary of State, Dr. Shirley Weber is here, and we are so excited that she agreed to be on the podcast. Welcome, Secretary Weber. Well, thanks for the invitation to be here. Appreciate it. As we finish up Women's History Month, it is so great to have Secretary Weber here with us to share her insights about empowering women leaders and recognizing their accomplishments. Of course, an important part of that discussion is your history, Dr. Weber. So we wanted to start off our questions uh, kind of in that path uh, and hoping that you'll tell us a little bit about your background and how your experience helped you to become such an effective elected official and public servant. Well, thank you. I, I think all of us come from um, very unique backgrounds. And, and, and if we're careful in examining uh, who we are and where we came from, we'll, we'll realize that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of who we are that, that, that takes to make it who we are in terms of there's a lot that goes into our background and our past. You know, my family was a, a, a family in Hope, Arkansas. Uh, my father was a sharecropper. And uh, which meant that he, uh, he owned land. He actually owned land, but he hadn't worked someone else's land because of racism uh, or else he would not have gotten been able to get seed or assistance or anything and would have been intimidated. So he worked someone else's land as well as his own. And oftentimes that system was really corrupt. It, it, it cheated you out of your wages. It cheated you out of what you'd earned during the year. Uh, and so as a result, there was always turmoil. And my father always fought back. He, he, he always challenged uh, what he was due, what was what his worth was. He challenged whether or not he had to continue to work for someone else and, and allow his crops to die on the vine if they worked too long for someone else. So there was constant efforts to make sure that those who were um, who were sharecroppers, those who were African Americans, never really got their due, never got their participation, never basically never came up in the system. And so as a result of that, my father constantly argued and fought back, and his fighting back made him a liability in Arkansas, in Hope, Arkansas so that they had planned to actually eliminate him or injure him in some serious way. And uh, because he had a fight at the way station about his wages. And, um, and as a result, his family, uh, his brothers took, he put him in the bed of a wagon and took him to uh, Texarkana uh, where they put him in a train on a train to uh, go to California where my, my grandmother was living, my mother's mother. And for the next three months, my brothers and sisters talk about how our, our family was taunted and he would come by at night, night riders looking for my dad and, you know, calling him names and all kinds of things as if he had left my mother with these six children and the typical so-and-so and so-and-so. Uh, without knowing that my father had gone to my mother's mother and in three months had earned enough wages to basically bring all of us to California uh, three months later. And so we came to California um, uh, my dad did, uh, working very hard, worked in the steel mills of Los Angeles, spent his whole life working hard to make sure his kids had an opportunity. But we always went back to Arkansas because my father never wanted us to be afraid, number one, and never wanted us to ever forget his relatives and his my aunts and uncles and cousins because he had a very large family. So I grew up with the, in, in, with recognizing the fact that that we were poor. We were, eventually, there were six of us who came to Arkansas in terms of children. There end up being eight of us overall. We were poor, but we were strong in faith, strong in, in, uh, in belief. And my dad worked very hard to make sure that his children always went to school, had what they needed to be successful. And we had a strong bond with our, with our parents, with our grandparents in Arkansas and our aunts and uncles, as well as my, my, um, my relatives in California. So I grew up knowing that I had strong family, that I was poor, that I was going to have to work hard all my life. 
that if I wanted to do and be seen, I'd have to work twice as hard. And I was taught that in elementary school. I went to the elementary school in Los Angeles and the Pueblos. That was basically a segregated school in Los Angeles. Uh, all of the teachers were black in that school except for one. And, um, and we were taught that we were gonna have to work twice as hard, twice as long in order to achieve because that's what racism was. And, uh, and so with that in mind, you know, they gave us the most and the best they had. And so even though I, we were in the projects, I had great education great teachers who cared deeply for us, a great community, a church that in, encouraged me uh, consistently to travel, to represent the church and across the nation, to make speeches, uh, to honor everything that we'd ever done that was excellent. And that was a, extremely a, a very big part of, of my life. And so it was, um, it was really no accident that I ended up at UCLA because of the support that I got from my family, from my church, uh, that uh, that celebrated the fact that I was smart, quote unquote, and that I could be somebody. And uh, and my six, seven brothers and sisters also thought the same thing. So they were intricately a part of pushing me forward. And uh, and so I came out of that 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 recognition, but also recognized the fact that I had a tremendous responsibility. That people would constantly say, "You're going to be a smart little girl, and you're going to do things for us." Uh, always that you're going to do that. And my mother would send me from house to house writing obituaries for everybody in the neighborhood because I could write and a lot of people couldn't. So I, but, but it was interesting and I hated to go, but in the end, I learned a lot about the people who lived in my neighborhood and the struggles they had and those who died from cirrhosis of the liver very young because they drank so much and they had gone in the military and couldn't get jobs and all those kinds of things. So just sitting there as a 15 year old writing these obituaries I saw people that looked very old, but they were actually young because life had beat them down. And I just learned a lot about the neighborhood that I lived in by simply going from house to house anytime there was a death to write these obituaries or to learn about some older woman's dreams and those kinds of things. And so I, you know, I hated to do it as a kid because, you know, you hate to do anything, but you, your mom tells you, you got to go, you got to go. And I learned a lot about life in my community that I didn't necessarily always share because I was always a kid in school, uh, but I understood the challenges and I understood the tremendous opportunity I had to serve them and to do well. And, and so I come out of that, 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 um, that, that area of service that, that was there that I was very, very blessed to have so many people care for me. And at the same time with the tremendous responsibility to give back. That's amazing, Dr. Weber. You know, uh, you can clearly see the influence of your family and your mother's influence uh, with regards to community service. And I know your daughter, who's now in the assembly, has often talked a lot about how you sparked her interest in public policy as well. And so curious um, what lessons you passed down to her and other young women uh, in your career uh, in academia and also in uh, public service. Well, I learned very early that um, that service was, was, was you know, is, is the price you pay to, to live in this world, that, that everybody has something to give. And the more you're given, the more you have to give, that that is, that is fundamental. Um, my mother had a, a, what they call the open hand philosophy. And she, she would always tell us that if you have an open hand, you might drop a penny or two along the way, but you always can give, the people can take from you and, they, and people can give to you. But if you have a closed hand, and you keep what you have, it's guaranteed that you probably won't drop anything, but you also won't get anything else. And so we live with that idea that, uh, that we had to give back. And my dad used to talk about the fact that my mother would give away everything we had if she could. And there wasn't a, um, uh, she was known in the neighborhood as a lady who collected for cancer society. You know, my mother had cancer early in life 
And uh, and as a result of that, she was anytime they wanted somebody, she'd knock on doors collecting money. And it didn't matter whether they were people with no resources or whether they were kind of gangsters in the neighborhood. They would always give to the cancer lady when she knocked on the door. They gave to the cancer lady. And um, and so she would always give, you know, whether it was. And, and if anybody died anywhere on our block and they two or three blocks around, she would go and collect money from everybody in the neighborhood and say, you miss, know Mrs. So-and-so who's a mother of whatever. She passed away and I'm collecting money for the family so they can have a funeral or whatever it was. So she collected money. She took turkey. She took dinners uh, to the family. So we, we kind of grew up knowing that 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 was kind of expected of us, that she was going to do that. She always cooked more food than she ever needed for the eight members of our family. And that was because in the neighborhood, she, we had a house and, and had a porch that people knew that she could, didn't have money, but she had food. And so oftentimes there would be people knocking on our door and she always saved her tin pans and her, her uh, plastic cups and those kinds of things. And she would give them what we had from dinner the night before, beans, rice, cornbread, whatever she had left over, she would heat it up for them and give them something to eat. And so she was known as that, hey, if, you, if you're hungry, there's this lady down there, there's a second one from the block, uh, from the corner, who'll give you something to eat. She's not gonna give you any alcohol, she's not gonna give me the money, because these were alcoholics, she's gonna give you something to eat. And she would. And so she, she was just a person forever giving to somebody. Every friend we had, she took in as, as if they were a mother. She had, every person who went to college saw her as, at, at our church, saw her as, as the mother of, of, of the folks who went to college because she said, everybody needs a mother. Anybody came to, there from somewhere else, they attached themselves to her and she had no problems in feeding them on Sunday or making sure they had something to do on the holidays. So we lived in an environment of giving. My mother was always giving something, giving back to somebody. And, um, and so I kind of grew up with that kind of attitude as well, because when I was, I think I was about 15 years old when I realized I was going to this huge church that they never gave, they never had dinners. And so I was, I, somebody reminded me the other day that I, that I organized the first Thanksgiving dinner at that huge church that was very wealthy. And we young people actually organized it. We put it together. We got the members of the church to donate their turkeys and this and that. And we organized the first Thanksgiving dinner at that church. And that's been years ago and they're still doing it today. And, 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 you know, I was a teenager and, but they had confidence that I could do it because I would, I would do things. And, um, and so I, I began to do those kinds of organizational things that I thought this church could give back. And what, what, what are we sitting here for with all this wealth and riches if we're not willing to give? Give to the homeless, give to those who don't have food, give clothes to individuals who need and figure out how we can make ourselves better. And, uh, and so I was known at the church as this girl who, drew, uh, who was very young uh, and, and I would go to the elders and those who were very old and say, you know, we need to feed the homeless. We need to do this. And they would say, well, I don't know. And then the, and the kids would get motivated, teenagers. And so we would actually do these fabulous dinners for the homeless. And um, and so it was it was I was just always there. And my mother was was one who was always going to give. She would see the kids between Sunday school and major church didn't have snacks because we had this program bringing in kids from all the neighborhoods. And so she then organized the snacks for all the kids in the church between Sunday school and church. And uh, and those kinds of things, just looking and saying there's a need. Let me let me feel this need. And she did that on a regular basis. Um, she was a woman of tremendous uh, capacity to love and to serve. And she taught us that by the things that she did. Uh, everything she had, she was she felt God had given it to her and it was her job to share it. And she did everything. Amazing. Dr. Weber, what influence have you had with regards to mentors in your life, mentorships? 
And what value do you see with regards to mentorships for young women who are just starting out on their on their journeys or their pathways in their careers? You know, one of the um, uh, things that that I that I had that was really important because I was even though I was number six, I was the first one in the family to really, really go to a major four year institution. My other sisters and brothers went to various trade schools and community colleges and developed careers as bankers and all these kinds of things. Um, and so when I got to the university, it was, you know, it was it was a new experience for me. And even though my family was very supportive, uh, it, you know, there was nothing that I needed that they weren't going to give me. My dad was going to make sure I even had socks that looked like all the other college girls. He saw them with these knee socks. <laughs> he thought they were exciting. One time he picked me up from UCLA. We were going to the football game. And he told my mother, go get her some of those socks because that's what the girls are wearing to college. I didn't even like the socks. But, <laughs> but he thought I should have them because everybody had them on. So they were going to do what they could, but they couldn't mentor me. They couldn't. They couldn't have conversation with me about what college was about. And uh, so I was grateful that when I got to UCLA, there was a, they had just started the, the uh, EOP program. So they didn't have it for me in admissions, but they had support services that were there when I was there. So I was, I was glad that I had a, a, a mentor that, was, that could talk to me about uh, college or issues, not so much always studying, but you know what it was like to be at a university. There's 30,000 students at this university, only 300 black students and a huge dorm with just a few African-Americans in the dorm. And so, so what is it like you know, to, to basically be on this campus and how do you navigate it? Because the narrative was very clear. The vast majority of us would drop out. And in fact, all of the women who, all the young girls who came in with me all did drop out. Uh, they, they dropped out for a year, then they go off and go come back to some other campus or UC Berkeley. Most of them end up coming back to school to get a degree, but, most, but none of them did the four years like I did. And so how do you navigate a campus like this that's so large, so impersonal as that? And, uh, and I was fortunate to, and then you did have very, very few African-American faculty members. So you didn't have people that you could talk to. And so here you're talking to some professor who has, doesn't seem to have any empathy with you at all and you're struggling in his class. You're embarrassed, you can't tell him that you're struggling because he obviously has a negative attitude toward you probably that you're supposed to struggle, you know, that you're not supposed to make it. And so it became difficult. I finally uh, had a, a mentor in the person uh, at the campus as a faculty in the person of um, Malefi Asante. At the time, his name was Arthur Smith. He's a professor in communications and I took a class in there and I knew him because he had, he had actually once attended my church and he came from Texas and he was, and then he went to Pepperdine and then he went to UCLA for his PhD. And, and, and he became a professor, very renowned professor at UCLA. And I attached myself to him. I attached myself to Malefi and Malefi was a great mentor because he knew what it was. He came out of Valdosta, Georgia. And you know, he, he understood what it was like to come from small towns with big families and folks who can't help you directly in that sense, but can cheer you on, but can't give you information. And so he became my mentor. Uh, every step of the way, he helped me figure out um, what the university was about. Uh, he helped me when I be, he nominated me to become a Woodrow Wilson fellow. I had no idea what the heck that was. I had no idea it would open up doors for me, but he did. And he said, you know, you're gonna be a Woodrow Wilson fellow. And so he nominated me as a Woodrow Wilson Fellow. He became my mentor all the way through. And to this day, when I became Secretary of State, I got a call from Malefi Asante. 
in, he's a professor at Philly and he is so proud of what I've done and he follows my career. And, um, and I've been chair of National Council of Black Studies and he agreed to serve on the board because I was president of National Council. And so he's been my mentor, my friend, my, uh, and now, as he says, my colleague, and now he says I'm his mentor, you know, but he's been, um, he's been good and, and, and particularly shepherding me through the academic thing. And, and then I've had others who were political. My, one of my mentors passed away recently, Dorothy Smith, who encouraged me to run for school board and I had no intentions of running. She refused to accept no as an answer and proceeded, and, and proceeded to organize my campaign without my permission. And, uh, but she was also someone who said, I will help you. And that becomes important. And so mentoring is extremely important. Uh, I have lots of kids around the world that I have mentored that still call me from all over the world to talk to me about their career goals and their options and what they want to do. Uh, and, and, and just to be able to talk to people either who've been there before uh, is extremely important. So I have a, um, a, a huge group of young people that I mentor and I've been supported by an awful lot of elected officials. Uh, Tony Atkins encouraged me to run for the assembly. Uh, I didn't want to run, but she also said, I will help you. And so she's been kind of my mentor and we laugh back and forth because she says I was her mentor when she was a young woman working with one of the health clinics in, in, uh, in San Diego. And, 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 and she's called me when she was on the city council on advice to deal with African-American communities and things to deal with. So we kind of go back and forth in our roles as mentor to each other. But, uh, but it's good to have people who you can trust who can you can find confidence in and who don't see mentoring you as a one-year experience. It is a lifetime of, 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 of interchange of information. And they should be someone that you trust, that you have tremendous respect for, uh, because you will share with them and you should be able to share with them things that are very sensitive, things that if everybody else knew would hurt you, but you know that these people will never intentionally hurt you. And that's why it's so really important to have very close individuals to you who can help you navigate the world and help you navigate where you want to go. I think that's so great to hear, Dr. Weber. I, I certainly uh, think that I agree with you that mentorships are so important. And it's nice to hear that you had both male mentor and female mentors who were there committed to your success in your career. I think so many times we think that it just has to be a female mentor that's men uh, mentoring young women, which is great but it can come from both sides and it really, uh, the commitment and the trust is the most significant part of that. So great comments from that perspective. Do you have any advice that you would give to company leaders, uh, employers who are working to encourage women to become leaders within their organizations and what obstacles or challenges that they can help eliminate to um, create that pathway for women leaders? You know, one of the things I think that's extremely important for all of us is that, um, couple of things. One, we should make sure that we open every opportunity possible for people to see what's inside. And, and I say that because so often, you know, folks think that um, they want to be so-and-so and only to discover that that really isn't the kind of job that they really wanted, or the kind of career that they wanted. But if they had been just close enough to see the person in the position, to be able to walk in those shoes with that individual, to carry them places, then they could see exactly what they like and don't like about it. And, um, and then they can figure out that they like aspects of it, but not the whole piece, you know. So it really becomes important that we get, that we get people a chance to give them a chance to see inside. Um, and, and we sometimes think that folks see, but they don't see in terms of because you, you think that they're there and they really aren't. You, you need to bring them into this inner circle occasionally 
to have them see what takes place. Because oftentimes it's a mystery, what's inside those rooms, uh, how decisions are made. Uh, some of the challenges that people face, personal challenges, sometimes people don't want to share that it's really hard being a mother and a, and a, and a, and a, and a politician and a this and a that if, you don't, if, you don't, if you're not there. And so it becomes really, really important that, we, that, that those of us who have companies or organizations that we bring people in. You know, I, I generally, I have a, an awful lot of folks when I was in the assembly, but even when I was at the university, that I would just take places with me, uh, young people, and, 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 and help them to see what's inside of this place so that they become comfortable with it, uh, that they can go to dinners or events with me, or they can, they can staff me at, a, at an event so they understand what, the, what, what my challenges are and what the difficulty is of being me in the midst of all of these other things that I have to be. Um, so I think it's really, really important, those of us who have companies who want to mentor young women, that we bring them in and that we understand that they're women and not men that they have certain things about them that's a little bit different. And that if you want them in the room, it's not because you just, you know, you, you want a man in a skirt. It's because you want a woman in the room. You know, I tell folks oftentimes, if you want an African-American, you have to release them to be African-American. You have to understand that they see the world very differently and give them the permission to see it because in the process, they might help you see things differently, but equally important, you can help them see things differently themselves so that they understand the differences that are there. And so I think it's, it's really, really important that we release folks to be who they are, that a woman comes into a, a space and she's not spitting and she's not like the guy, she's, she, she, she is a woman, you know? And, 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 and she should recognize that coming in the room, these are not all women, these are men in this room as well. Uh, and that, uh, that we see the world differently but that's okay because that's what makes the world better. And, uh, and I've always tried to tell folks when, they, when they're hiring someone as African-American, I said, understand, they're gonna see the world differently. They're gonna uh, look at things differently, doesn't make it better, but you should be able to hear what they have to say and glean from it, whether or not it's something in it that you can use and then help them to see what you see in your world. Uh, because we assume everybody sees the same thing, but we really don't. We operate completely differently. And so open up those opportunities. Bring them close in, have them mentor, have them actually work closely with the person that we, they think they'd like to be uh, and see what the challenges are, personal and professional challenges that are there. And, uh, and then they can make some decisions of whether or not this is something I want to do at this phase of my life or somewhere else at a different time, depending on their own priorities and where they want to be. I think that's a really good point and uh, things that I've even noticed uh, in my career. One, the exposure so you can see what the opportunities are, I think, are huge. But two, having those uh, diverse voices in the room, because um, we all have different backgrounds and different perspectives. Uh, and you're missing out if you don't listen to some of those other diverse uh, voices and what their perspectives are on things. And so really, uh, really great, great points uh, that you made, Dr. Weber. I appreciate that. Well, we are uh, out of time for today, so I just wanted to thank you again, uh, Dr. Weber, for uh, participating on our podcast. We really appreciate it, and again, such a treat for us to have um, the Secretary of State with us here today. Thank you again, Dr. Weber. Appreciate it. Have a great day. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us on The Workplace. Please comment, share, and subscribe to Cal Chambers' podcast by visiting calchamber.com. 